Earlier this school year, Mrs. Shepard's class read a novel by Elisa Carbone called Blood on the River, a historical fiction novel that takes place in Jamestown in 1607. The students were captivated and we went on a journey through what it felt like to live in actual Jamestown in 1607. Once we finished that book, the class voted and we decided to read its sequel, Poison in the Colony. This takes place in Jamestown in 1622. They've expanded from the original fort of Jamestown into various towns around, such as Elizabeth City. This sequel, Poison in the Colony, follows Samuel, one of the boys that grew up in Jamestown Colony, and his friend Virginia, who was one of the first to be born in the New World, and their family. What makes this book a little bit interesting is that Virginia has what she calls the knowing. She can sense things that are about to happen before they actually happen. So she has felt senses of danger from nearby Indian tribes, um, threats from the gentlemen who don't really love the working class in Jamestown. I might not pronounce all of the Indian names correctly, but I always do my best. We're going to pick up in chapter 44. For those of you that don't quite remember because it feels like eons ago, we know that mom and dad have been living in Elizabeth City with the three girls and Samuel has been working on his own house as well. Mom is a midwife and she's just delivered a child in Elizabeth City and she's feeling nervous for the mother and the child's health. Samuel has headed back home and returns with news um, that one of the main Indians, um, Nebetanyu, a warrior, has been killed by an Englishman. The family is now worried about the peace between the Indians and the settlers. So let's pick up in chapter 44. Chupoak is gone for a few days, and when he returns, he seems different, much more serious and moody. I hear him and Samuel talk together in Algonquian, and I hope that Samuel is helping him to sort out his sad feelings. When Chapoic is with Alice and Catherine playing their games or teaching them Algonquian words, the heaviness seems to lift, like when Alice shows him how to play handy dandy. Watch, Alice says. She holds out her fists in front of Catherine. Handy dandy, prickly pandy, which hand will you have? Catherine chooses the left hand and finds a pretty red berry inside it. She giggles and tries to take the berry. Let's play again, Alice says, snatching her hands away and hiding them behind her back. Handy dandy, prickly pandy, which hand will you have? Catherine chooses left again and gets an empty hand. Predictably, she pouts and fusses. Alice wags her finger at her, and I hear my words from years ago. Catherine, it's a game. Sometimes you get the prize, sometimes you get the empty hand, but it's supposed to be fun every time. Catherine tries hard to put on a happy face. Fun, she says. Then both girls play the game with Chapok, and he is kept busy choosing hands. But when the game is over, his serious mood comes back. My hope is that little by little, Chupok's sadness over Nemetanu's death will lift and he will be his happy self again. March is the time to plant peas, onions, and radishes. And this year, we are planting our own land. Our barn is ready for a cow, a mule, and chickens. Fields are cleared and ready to plant tobacco. My parents think it is too early to announce it, but I know that I will soon have another baby sister. The trees are still bare, but there is warmth in the air. Birds begin to return from their flight south to sing for us, 
and the first green shoots push up from the ground. I feel the hope of this new year. On a beautiful Friday morning, I awake before dawn. I tiptoe past my sleeping family and walk outside. There is a light breeze and the air echoes with the chirping of spring peepers. I decide to start my chores early. I lift the yoke and buckets to my shoulders and head toward the river. The sky has a glow in the east, but it is more the waning quarter moon that lights my path. I am humming as I approach the barn where Chipoke sleeps. As I get closer, I stop my humming so I won't wake him, but I hear a strange noise. It is Chipoke's voice making a tight strangled sound. I run to the barn door and push it open. Chipoke is on his knees, his head hanging into his hands. He is swaying and groaning as if he is in great pain. I run to him. Chipoke, what is it? What has happened? I cry. He looks up. His cheeks are streaked with tears. He blinks at me as if he is not sure what he is seeing in the dim light of the barn. Are you hurt? I ask. I see no blood, no cuts, no wounds. There is torment in Chipoke's eyes. He reaches out to touch my face, but I instinctively push his hand away. The moment my hand touches his, I see what he's thinking. They come to help us work in the fields with shovels and hose, to help build houses with hammers and saws, or to help fall trees with axes and wedges. They come to eat breakfast, and I see the colony's women slicing bread with kitchen knives. They come to each of the plantations and towns and farms spreading out among the colonists like a spider's web being woven. It is like any other day, the natives coming to work and eat and live among us. But suddenly it all changes. Each of the natives grasps something nearby, a shovel, an axe, a kitchen, excuse me, a kitchen knife, a hammer. The next instant there is blood everywhere as the hammers and shovels and axes come down on whoever is closest. No one has a chance to fight back. There is no warning. It is an Indian uprising. I gasp. Chipoke is shaking. He is looking at me with such anguish that I know this vision must be true. When will this happen, I demand. He hangs his head back into his hands and starts his moaning. Of course he won't answer me. How could he know that I know what he's thinking? I pounce on him, shove him onto his back, and I sit down hard on his chest. Before he can even react, I press my thumbs into his throat and shake him. When, I screech, when is the attack planned to happen? He looks shocked. Today, he croaks out, his throat squeezed under my thumbs, mourning. I jump up and run. I am crying, tripping over roots. I fall down hard, gash my hand open on a sharp rock, but I am up again, running despite the pain. I burst into our house. Mum is stoking the fire and others are still sleeping. I am breathing too hard to speak. Mum sees my terror, the blood dripping from my hand. Virginia, she whispers. Warning, I say between gasps for air. Warning, everyone, muskets, swords, cannons, stop them. I want to say what I feel, but I know that Chipoke has relief that someone else knows. They don't want to do this. They have been ordered to do it by their chief, and anyone who refuses will die a slow, tortured death of a traitor. My breath slows down and I am able to speak. Stop the natives. Don't let them come today. We must turn them around with our muskets and swords. Send them back home. Stop the attack before it starts. Dad and Samuel are awake and have heard me. Samuel is already on his way out the door. I will go directly to Captain Noose, he says. We will get the word out. How do you know this, Dad demands. What? Mum interrupts him. There is no time, John. She can tell you later. Dad is putting on his boots. I will warn our neighbors, he says. Then he takes his sword down off the wall and gives it to Mum. Then he lights the fuse on his musket with a piece of kindling from the fire and carries his musket with him out the door. I want to go with Dad, Alice says. Me too, Catherine says. 
You two just sit while I bandage your sister's hand, Mum says. No, Mum, there's no time, I say. What about Jamestown? Then suddenly a thought strikes me and I feel faint. What about Martin's hundred? I have to go. I have to tell them. I start toward the door, but Mum grasps my arm. Virginia, your hand is bleeding, she says firmly. You cannot go. The dizziness overtakes me and I begin to slump. Mum guides me into a chair. I sink down and rest my head into my good hand. When I close my eyes, I can see the scene I envisioned again, a violence. I see Bermuda, his hands raised above his head, the way he used to when Vincenzo beat him. I open my eyes to stop the vision. Mum brings a bowl of hot water and begins to bathe my gashed hand. You will have to trust God with Jamestown and Martin's Hundred and all the rest of the colony, she says gently. Let Samuel and your father get the word out. She presses cobwebs on my wound with the sticky silk to help knit the jagged edges of skin together. Then she bandages it with clean rags. Blood quickly soaks through the rags. Mum is right. I would never be able to paddle a canoe against the current. I would pass out from blood loss before I even got close to the other settlements. I sit at the table as Mum dishes out porridge for the girls. She doesn't even expect me to eat. Through our window, I see Chipoke trudging up the hill to our house. It is what he does every morning to join us for breakfast before starting work with Dad and Samuel. But today, it is as if he has leaden, leaden, excuse me, as if he has weights on his feet. He is still fulfilling his orders, I realize. I pick up Dad's sword and I stand in the doorway brandishing it. Go, I shout at Chipoke before he can get close. Go away from us or I will harm you. He is unarmed. Just like all the Indians I saw in the vision, he carries no weapon. He will have to use our own kitchen tools or Dad's sword to kill me and Mum and my sisters. Chipoke stops and looks at me. He closes his eyes for a moment as though he is praying. Then he turns and walks off toward the forest. Mum is right. I will have to trust about the other towns and plantations. I will stay home to protect my sisters and my mother.